Spencer, I did it this past week. I hit 50 miles in total ride distance. Had a couple commutes in there, and then the ride that you and I did up in the mountains. I'm so proud of you, Fred. Yeah, you should be, because 50 miles is the important barrier due to our friends at Health IQ. If you ride 50 miles a week at least, you could get $500,000 in life insurance, starting at just $20 a month from our good friends at Health IQ. Spencer, what can you say about Health IQ? Health IQ has been supporting our Velo News podcast for quite some time, and we love the work they do. All you have to do is go to healthiq.com slash velonews. You get a free quote on that life insurance, and you get a good rate when you're a healthy cyclist like Fred, me, and uh, hopefully you. Something tells me you rode a lot more than 50 miles this past week. I was just doing a secret, though. That's smart. Keep it all a secret to us. Well, thanks again to Health IQ for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. Let's get on with the show. You're tuned into the Vel News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer. Joined today in the Vela News World Headquarters by Spencer Paulison. Hello, Spencer. Hey, Fred. And Dane. Hey, Fred. Hi, Dane. How's it going? Guys, I'm not going to lie. I'm still kind of buzzing from watching Worlds. It was, uh, we're recording this on Monday morning. Worlds was yesterday, Sunday morning. And uh, I'm not going to lie. It was just me, the doggy, the couch, like six cups of coffee. And by the end, by the final sprint, I was just buzzing. I was like on the edge of my seat. Uh, that was one heck of a good bicycle race to watch. Spencer, first impressions, what uh, what were your favorite moments from watching Worlds? My favorite moment was knowing that they were coming into that final steep climb and that it was kind of an X factor in that uh, they hadn't done this climb yet during the long, long race. They were all tired, and uh, it was kind of all, all to play for at that point. Dane, were you able to watch? Were you like uh, neglecting any of your Sunday morning chores? Uh, I always neglect Sunday morning chores. Sitting on the couch yeah. watching bike racing. That's all I ever do on Sunday. That is my Sunday morning chores, watching bike racing. Uh, yeah, I was able to watch. Uh, I, I was really kind of pulling for Dumoulin, kind of sneaking back there at the end. That was an exciting thing to watch. He did. I mean, he did get back on. But it didn't really mean anything. But that was cool to watch him uh, trying to get back on. And then it was a good final sprint. I mean, it was pretty close, a lot, kind of closer than I thought it would be. I thought it was two from the head-on shot, and then they showed the overhead. Mm. And it was like, oh, sorry, Roman Bardet and Mike Woods. You got nothing on Alejandro yeah. Valverde. Maybe I was fooled by the camera foreshortening that they always do. Always happens. Yeah. Well, we have a very world-centric week of the Vela News podcast. We're going to talk all about the world championships went on this past week and weekend in Innsbruck, Austria. We had time trials. We had road races. We had a kid named Remco winning big races. Remco Swanepoel. Evenepoel. Evenepoel. Yeah, that. That's it. The next... The next Eddie Merckx yeah. beat you Ooh, to it. Yeah, I was going to say next Tom Bonin, but that's even better. They the the Belgies are calling him the next Eddie Merckx, which is an even no loftier. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah, I I gotta say though, I mean, Belgium has produced some great cyclists over the years, but they all have like pretty kind of household names, you know, mm. Eddie, Tom, Greg, Greg. Where, where do we put Remco in that? Yeah, that's a weird name. Do we know it's not a household name? Maybe it is. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's just like Jeff. That's just yeah. like, no, it's in like Flanders. Roger. It yeah. sounds Flemish for Roger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Remco sounds like a place 
where you take your 1980s Subaru when the transmission has blown. Mm. Like, ah, take it down to Remco. Or some sort of sleep company, you know? Like ooh, REM, ooh, get like your REMs. Rapid eye movement. Yeah. 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 Well, we're going to be keeping our eyes on Remco going forward. So, guys, we had a, a great week of Worlds Road Racing. I think when we last left our listeners, though, we were coming up on the elite men's and women's uh, time trials. Oh, looking over at Spencer, you're already falling asleep talking mm. about time trials. Mm. So we're gonna take it. We're gonna keep time trial talk to a, a minimum. Uh, Dane, time trial talk. What can you say about uh, what went on in those time trials? Yeah, well, the women's side was kind of ran as expected. Van der Breggen versus Van Vluten, and Van Vluten won, defended her title in the time trial. Uh, nice ride from her. I think she's established herself as the world's best female time trialist of the moment. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> she's pretty good at that that kind of thing, and does it throughout the year too. It's not just at Worlds time. And there have been some riders where that'll happen, where they'll just kind of show up at Worlds and that's it. And then on the men's side, I think we were treated to a cool battle there. I mean, Tom Dumoulin versus Rowan Dennis, there actually was some suspense. Uh, I I don't know that it was uh, a foregone conclusion on that side. Uh, Rowan Dennis took the win. Tom Dumoulin, uh, another frustrating second place for Tom Dumoulin, who was, of course, second at the Giro, second at the Tour. I mean, it's just kind of how he... Likes number two. How his year has gone, you know? (laughs) Uh, and the Tom Dumoulin with uh, he had some epically poopy pants quotes afterwards too where he was just like oh I've never felt worse before in my life it was the worst race ever I mean come on you race two grand tours in a season I don't know what you expect your legs aren't going to be feeling magical when it comes time to be in September yeah and uh, one thing I will add about that women's race two things about the women's race Dane the Dutch sweeping the podium yeah insane it's amazing yeah also the Americans not getting on the podium, but three women in the top 10. Taylor Wiles, 10th. Amber Neven, 7th. Leah Thomas, 5th. I mean, pretty pretty decent showing from the Americans and hopefully more to come in, in future years. Yeah, I really wonder how Chloe Dygert Owen would have done Ooh, yeah. in that race. I'm really looking forward to her being in the mix of these world championship races. Uh, Tom Dumoulin with the epically poopy pants quotes. Um, I love Tom Dumoulin in post-race interviews. I'm going to say it now. I've said it again. Uh, at the Tour de France, he would just let everyone, Dutch and American journos, everyone in between, just gather around. Yeah. And he would just, just goes on, just like holds court yeah. and says... Dumoulin hy- after dark. Yeah. And says how hyperbolic things like, that was the worst race ever. That was, no one has ever been worse than I was. Yeah, there weren't a lot of last question guys coming out of Tom Dumoulin during the tour. You just go on and on. It's great. Yeah. I think we need more champions like Tom Dumoulin. And he also calls out his, his fellow competitors, too. Oh, yeah. I very much enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. You keep being you, Tom Dumoulin. Yeah. Uh, and that was time trial talk. Yeah. All right. Five Time's minutes. Uh, ample. Yeah. Time. Ample time for time, time trial. Time trial. Uh, guys. Before we get to the men's road race won by Ageless Wonder Alejandro Valverde, which has stirred up uh, all of the hot and a lot of like lukewarm takes, mm. let's talk about the women's road race because we have our compatriot Corinne Rivera to talk to. I spoke with Corinne this morning. We'll get to her in a little bit. But Dane, what can you say about the action of the women's road race and how Anna Vandebregen was able to win? Yeah, I mean, she really dominated the field. I think it's the, it's the best way to put it. And uh, it was the kind of performance that we've seen from Anna van der Breggen here and there. But this is the biggest stage uh, every year. I think the Women's World Championship Road Race is probably the biggest one-day race of the year. Uh, she won the Olympics. I would say that's maybe Of the step. year, not of the quadrennial. Uh, uh, yeah. Now we're splitting yeah. Hairs. yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Every year, though, she gets the chance to race this race. She had never won it before. This is a big deal. Yeah, you know, there was a breakaway up the road. She kind of made her way up there following on an attack from Annemiek van Vluten, like her teammate, 
nominally, I guess, in this race, although obviously there's a lot of talk of intra-team drama there because those are the two best riders in the world right now. And uh, anyway, she makes up to the move and, and then just leaves everybody behind and, and won by, what, like three minutes, and three and a half minutes, something like that, over Amanda Spratt. Um, yeah, it wasn't close. wasn't close at all. She really established herself, I think, as the strongest rider out there by a mile. I saw some back and forth between people on Twitter basically saying like, you know, don't say the race isn't exciting just because or it's like, you know, you're besmirching the athletes by saying it's not exciting or something. I was like, you know what? I think it's perfectly fair to say that Anna van der Bregen was the dominant strongest rider in this race and chapeau to her. Yeah. But it didn't make for the most edgier seat exciting race. And that happens sometimes. Yeah. And both things can exist yeah. in the same world. Happens in a lot of sports. I mean, if if the Patriots put up 30 points on your team and nothing happens other than that, it's not that exciting, even if they're good, you know? Patriots Ooh, time. Yeah. 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 Watch out. <laughs> yeah, kind of a foregone conclusion by the finish. Three minutes, 42 seconds ahead of Spratt. Now, that's that's how you win a road race. I feel like it was one of those races where tactics, strategies, all sorts of plotting, you got nothing on the strongest uh, legs in the race. Anna van der Bregen was obviously the the strongest rider, and you know uh, other nations were trying things out. Corinne Rivera made the early move. She was joined by Amanda Spratt and a couple other riders. Tatiana Gerdzo was in there. You know, you could see that the various nations were doing everything that they could to try and take down the Dutch. Um, the Dutch also had a rider up. Uh, it was Ellen Van Dyke make that early move, and when Van Dyke was dropped because she's not the best climber, that's when the Dutch sprung into action. So as Dane mentioned, Annemiek van Vluten went on the attack. We didn't know this till after the race. Annemiek van Vluten had crashed earlier in the race and like broken a bone in her knee. Yeah. So she, and furthermore, she attacked on the final climb and went on to finish seventh with a broken leg, basically. Yeah. So yeah. that's, and you got it going back to the Dutch's, ta- the Netherlands tactics, I should say. Uh, it was, it was flawless because like you said, Fred, they got a rider in the early break. Chase back the early break if it's not the right composition. And once Vanderbregen was up the road, the Dutch were doing a masterful job of just marking every attack that tried to go up the road on that single climb of each lap. And it's just uh it's just no way you can you can compete with that when they have such a deep, talented team. So it was a show of dominance and Dane, it uh added a wrinkle to a debate that you and I have been having all season long. And that debate is uh, the who you got, Van der Bregen or Van Vluten. Basically, who is the best female road racer in the world right now, Anna Van der Bregen or Annemiek Van Vluten? Um, I think that this added a new little wrinkle to oh, it yeah. because you're you're in the Van Vluten camp. Yeah. So please state your state your name, state your rank, and state your argument. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm Dane Cash. I'm a reporter for Vela News. Okay. Um, I would say that Van Vluten's year. Uh, was was just too consistent, too amazing across the board. She won the biggest stage race of the course. Um, she's she's just constantly been up there in the biggest races and winning all year long, and has proven herself, you know, one of the most versatile riders. Obviously, she's won the time trial title two years in a row now, but she can also climb really well. And and just across the board, I think the talent that she showed all year was uh, was pretty impressive. And add to that the fact that she's not riding for Bowles Dolmans. That's a big deal. Uh, that, to me, makes her stand out as having the, the best year of the uh, women's peloton. Yeah, you're looking at Giro Rosa, Bowles Ladies Tour. Yeah. 
uh, LaCourse. boy, that dramatic LaCourse. Yeah, yeah. That was big. Um, yeah, no, a, a ton of really good races. All right. My name's Fred Dreyer, mm. the editor of Bella News. I'm going to state my case for Anna von der Bregen. And here's the case. Anna von der Bregen came into 2018 with one race she wanted to win, and that was the World Championships. For the last few years, we've been talking about how the world has been kind of the monkey on her back. She's obviously strong. She's won gold medals. She's done so much in the sport. No rainbow jersey, though. And to put that type of pressure on oneself and to be able to say, you know, that's the one I want. I'm going to go out there and get it and actually do it and actually modify her season so that she could do it. She famously skipped the Giro this year. She said it was because she, you know, she's done the Giro for like 10 years in a row and she just wanted a little break. She went and rode her mountain bike. But uh, my spidey senses tell me that maybe that was a tactical move to try and save things up for the worlds. And when the pressure was on, she was able to deliver. So basically, Spencer, Dane and I are having the argument that's th- that's raged forever oh, in yes. cycling and other sports. Other sports too, yeah. yeah. like skiing, which is basically, is it better to be the World Cup winner, the consistency, or is it better to be the World Championships winner, best mm-hmm. on the day? Mm-hmm. And as impartial arbiter okay. in this argument, yeah. I'm granting you power to make decision. Ooh, wow. Fred, when, when do we have my review? Is yeah, it's not like up? Fred's your boss is, or is anything. My review coming this up seems next totally month? fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. coming up. Yeah. yeah. You've been taking a lot of sick days, too. Sure, What's up like with that? a new car, you know? Yeah, but who's been covering the website on Ooh, those sick point. days? That's huh? a good point. Hmm. Uh, well, it's definitely going to be someone with the first name begins with A, and last, it has a van in there, too. So I'd say, uh, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna say Van Vluten. Oh, yeah. I'm going to say Van Vluten. Just consistency. And also, I mean, a time trial world championship counts. <laughs> if you're talking about someone who needs yeah. to win a world championship to prove themselves, to have stripes on their sleeves, to, to wear the jersey, uh, Van Vluten's done that twice over. And um, uh, yeah, it's not a road race, but a time trial is arguably a pure test of just this sheer talent. And uh, she'll be back. I, I got to think she will have her shot at winning a road race world championship in the near future and uh wouldn't surprise me if those uh dutch riders keep on rolling yeah we need to point out i think that injury is pretty serious it's going to take a little while to get back from that i was seeing months before returning to competition which is not great uh for for van vluten because she's not a young she's not a spring chicken and uh although she's been quite talented this year last year too she's had some great results i mean it's not a great time to have a serious injury like that Mm. yeah she just tweeted out a picture of herself in a hospital bed. Operation done. Everything fixed again. No bones flying around in my knee. Bones flying around in a knee? That doesn't sound good. Uh, my leg will be in a brace for at least four weeks. No bending of my knee, walking, etc. So no bones can grow together again. Well, maybe she'll get a little rest this way. Oh, yeah. Well, we wish her a speedy recovery. Uh, I interviewed Mariana Voss last week, asking her lots of questions that will appear in the upcoming issue of Vela News Magazine. Get it now. We'll yeah. get it then. She said about Van Vluten, she said she has an amazing pain tolerance hmm. and that when they were teammates four years ago on the Rabobank team, and actually that was a just all-star team, Mariana Voss, Annemiek Van Vluten, and Anna Van der Bregen all yeah. on the same team. That is badass. She basically said that like we all knew Van der Bregen was going to be just boss, you know. Uh, but Annemiek, she said, you know, she was really strong, but like still was not 
like the best, but she had this work ethic and she had this pain tolerance. And, uh, yeah, it's going to come in handy seeing that x-ray breaking one's so, knee and yeah. then being able to do that well in a race. Uh, guys, I, I'm going to go ahead and concede, lay down my arms and agree with you. I think that Anna Meek Van Vluten, um, is an amazing racer and had her best year ever this year. Oh, yeah. I think unquestionably this was her best year. And, uh, so maybe Anna Meek Van Vluten, best in the world. Guys, before we talk about the men's race, let's get a little inside look at went on in the women's race from our compatriot, Corinne Rivera. I called up Corinne today to talk, uh, you know, tactics, what went on in the day. She was part of that early breakaway, and she had some good responses. Hopefully, the audio is loud enough for people to hear because I am not exactly a technical genius, and when left to deal with the... uh, Various recording devices. Yeah, Spencer's shaking his head at me. So you could have asked me for help. It was early. She was on European time. Uh, All right. I know. Okay. Anyway, let's uh, hear from Corinne Rivera. Okay. Right now it is early Monday morning, and I am so pleased to be joined by Corinne Rivera. Corinne, are you still in Innsbruck? You just raced the world championships this past weekend. Where Where in the world are you right now? I'm actually currently in uh, Daventer. Netherlands, uh, where our team's uh, headquarters and service course is. Okay, so you guys got out of Innsbruck pretty quickly then. Yeah, we got here uh, yesterday afternoon, so we're already uh, getting into 2019, actually. So Excellent. Well, Corinne, I wanted to talk with you about uh, the World Championships race. You were very active in the race, made the breakaway that uh, almost made it all the way to the line. Um, it looked like a really hard day and a hard effort. I guess my first question for you is, what was Team USA's strategy like going into this race? What were sort of the broad brushstrokes of what you wanted to accomplish? Um, our, our main leaders for the day were uh, Megan, Ruth, and uh, Katie, our uh, climbing specialists. So, um, yeah, the idea was to kind of get up the road ahead of them and so that we could help them when the, the big climbers... And them really uh, did their thing. So uh, they were our leaders for the day. And, um, yeah, I was a bit more final support once we got into Innsbruck. Who did you have your eyes on when you, you know, thought about the riders who were capable of really excelling on that course? Who were the, were the riders and the teams that you guys were really keeping an eye on? Yeah, I think definitely the big favorites were Anna Vanderbrugen. And uh, Anamik Van Vluten, so, and those are riders who can just drop everyone in the world, I think, when it when it comes to climbing. So it kind of makes no sense to, to wait around too much. And, um, yeah, for for me, I, I can't keep up with those, those climbers. Uh, and so uh, I had to get ahead as, as soon as I could as uh, in a – in a manageable way. So, um, after the first time up the Innsbruck climb was really a key moment for me to, to do my part for the team. And then it was a bit difficult without radios to really know what was going on. So that's why I was kind of caught out for a lot of the race and kind of wondering what was going on behind me and also in front of me at some points too. Yeah. I was just going to ask you about that. Normally we see these, 
top level road races, uh, be a little bit more controlled. You're racing with teammates who you race with week in, week out. You have race radios. You're able to communicate a little bit better. What's it like being in a world championship race without the radios? Is Are there any scenes or memories that stand out from Saturday's race that really speak to how difficult it is to communicate? Yeah, I think uh, world championships this year is a, a such a different race from what we are used to all year round. And normally we're, we're racing against my team, you know, the USA teammates, and now we're all of a sudden together. And um, and then we also, on top of that, don't have radios. So for me, um, the, the moments in the race for me that I finally had a bit more clarity was uh, when I was going through the start-finish area and I could watch on the TV kind of what was going on and what was the time gap. And so I didn't want to just stop riding even though I was alone, but then I could finally look at the television and see, oh, there's like three or four girls behind me not too far away, so I can ease up a little bit and then at least work with them for a while. So those were some moments in the race where I could really figure out what was going on. And other than that, Sure, uh, a timing board is great, and it shows how far back some people are, but I mean, you don't really know those numbers right off the top of your head sometimes, too. So uh, it's a lot of thinking on, on your feet and a lot of instinct uh, and just not a lot of knowing what's going on, so it makes it a little bit frustrating. You know, Corinne, we often think of you as a sprinter, you know, a gal who really can finish off these races. So it was really interesting to see you go on that solo flyer. Uh, Take me through the solo move. Why did you do it then? And uh, what was the sensation like of being out there all by yourself uh, on this world championship course? Yeah, I mean, yeah, normally my strength is sprinting. uh, But of course, on this course, it's it's not going to come down to a sprint. So there's no reason for me to sit around and wait uh and so for me to help my teammates and my leaders i i have to be ahead of the race a little bit and and uh be there to support them in any way i can whether it's helping close a gap or you know giving them food or whatever or you know helping them from in front but i can't help them from behind the race so uh that moment over the first time uh of the innsbruck circuit yeah, it was a, there was a bit of a lull in the peloton, and I felt like I could get ahead on the descent, and uh, I took my chance there, and I was really hoping that others would come with me and put a little bit more pressure on, um, uh, you know, hoping they'd come to me immediately, but yeah, when I went, I had a gap really fast, and yeah, yeah, there's no reason for me to sit up, and I was just hoping that they would come to me at some point, and uh, yeah, it was just arrow tucking down that descent and uh yeah it was pretty lonely for a while for a few laps actually um and at points uh yeah when i crossed the start finish line i i saw that there were there was a group behind me so i waited for them rode with them for a little bit uh up the second time of the innsbruck circuit climb and then uh, of course anna vandenbergen came along and uh I saw her coming fast and I was hoping she would sit on just for a little bit and hoping I could suffer, you know, the last couple K over the top of the climb um, so that I could hang on for the next lap. Uh, and uh, I, was, I was actually eating a bar before I knew she was coming across. And then I saw her coming across and I tried to eat it as fast as I can. And then she came and then she attacked us immediately. And I thought this is not a good time to be eating. So I actually spit 
that bar out of my mouth, took a huge swig of this full water bottle that I had, and then just tossed it. <laughs> and uh, just went all in to try and hold on to this wheel because uh, she was alone. So that was uh, kind of the second lap. And then I got caught out. Um, she and Amanda Spratt, uh, you were, they were just going way too fast up the climb. So I was kind of in no man's land again by myself. And then the same two that were in the break earlier caught me into the final climb. And at that point, yeah, I was pretty, pretty cooked being on my own for a long time. You know, Van der is a rider we've had our eyes on for a number of years. Obviously, Olympic champion, you know, one of the best on the climbs, the flats, the punchy courses. Um, what can you say about, you know, th- the speed that she was going at when she was able to catch you guys and then attack out of that group? Um, was it, you know, was she just noticeably stronger? Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Uh, and I looked back a couple times to to see what if I, if anything was going on behind me and I could see orange coming pretty fast and uh yeah she didn't even hesitate she didn't even sit on us for a little bit she just went straight through us and uh i tried to hang on for as long as i could i don't know exactly for how long i was on her and amanda spratt's wheel um but i suffered as much as i could and then i really had to pace myself otherwise i was going to explode so she's definitely a, a worthy champion and uh it's pretty incredible how how strong she really is and kind of how effortless it is for her it seems so corinne how is the mood around team usa after the race obviously you know no medals but uh aggressive tactics um what were what was the download and and how was the attitude yeah i think yeah it's, it's hard to say because we don't normally ride together you know and to just base our performance on this one day um, where this certain mix-up of riders are, uh, it's pretty pretty harsh. So I think, uh, yeah, we were out there in the front, um, but it was also hard to really continue to back up the move and, um, yeah, continue to race from there. And it's hard also with, you know, you're up against the, the world's best climbers, and it's not like we didn't try, that's for sure. Um but the, with how the course was in the race situation and not being able to communicate with radios what's going on uh, made it pretty difficult. Do you think that the strongest rider won? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, she just hands down rode away from everyone. And uh, no matter what you can do, and I'm sure everybody tried to, to do their best, uh, on Saturday, I think, uh, yeah, she just literally rode away. <laughs> well, I mean, then you have the hilly mountainous circuit like that. Sometimes, uh, that's the, that's the outcome. I think we're all going to be hoping for maybe a hilly or a sprint circuit in the next coming years. Yeah, for sure. It looks, uh, pretty rolly up and down in Yorkshire. So, at least it's not a massive mountain in the middle. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. It's another chance. Every year is another chance. And uh, hopefully just be better prepared for it. All right. Well, Corinne Rivera, you finished 31st overall in the women's road race. You were out there on a gallant solo breakaway. And you were one of the women who helped make the race. So thanks 
again for making some time for us and best of luck with the off season. No worries. Thanks for chatting, Fred. Yeah. And I will definitely be enjoying a nice off season. <laughs> awesome. Spencer, before we talk about the men's race, gravel season is wrapping up. We had the Grand Duro race out in California this past weekend. You've been doing all these gravel races this year. Tell me about the gear you've been using. You've been uh, you you got a specialty helmet? Yeah, you know, we uh got a few sponsors lined up for this coverage of gravel racing and uh Bell is one of them. They produce the Z20 MIPS helmet and uh that helmet's been great for these gravel races. It's got that MIPS protection system, which protects against rotational forces if you're unfortunate enough to smack your head. Um, but it's also really well ventilated, and it's got this cool pad that uh, the, the, the helmet pad like kind of wraps around the front so you drip sweat away from your sunglasses, which is good for a heavy sweater like myself. Yeah, it would be good for me too. And I would imagine in some of these gravel races where – you know, you got to keep your hands on the handlebars at all time. You don't want to be monkeying around with the sweat dripping in your eyes. Yeah, that's exactly true. So stay tuned for Chris Case's recap of Grinduro. It will be on uh, velonews.com shortly. All right. Thanks to Bell for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. All right, guys, on to the men's race. As we mentioned at the top of the show, Alejandro Valverde won the world championships in a four-up sprint with Michael Woods of Canada, Roman Bardet of France, and Tom Dumoulin, who just fought him, fought his way to get back on the group right before the sprint started. He didn't have much in that sprint. He looked pretty tired. Um, Dane, what can you say about all the action that happened up until that point? Well, I think the race kind of unfolded as expected. This last lap of this course had an extra climb. We had the, the Eagles climb was the main climb on the Innsbruck circuit. The last lap through in the Hodinger hole, the hell climb, which is a very imposing and scary name. Uh, and it was a very scary climb. It was like a 10, 11, 12% grade. Did for... you see the guys dressed up as like Krampus on the side? Ooh. Like little like crazy horns and stuff. Perfect place to do it. Yeah, I'd yeah. be afraid one of those horns might get in someone's spokes, but otherwise, good good local flavor. Yeah, for a for a climb in the double digits of almost 3K, so that we knew it was going to kind of come down to this last lap. It was, the writing was on the wall, and it did. Uh, the, the break is caught. You have a small group at the front. Uh, Michael Valgren solos away for a little while, I think, and then uh, he's, he's... Danish? The Danish, Danish. the Danes, like always Danes. doing, yeah, Danes yeah. are always doing work. Uh, he gets caught, and then we have just a lot of the familiar faces we expected to see up there. You mentioned them all. I mean, Valverde is there, Mike Woods, Roman Bardet, Julian Alaphilippe was there. Fred and I, I think we were both uh, pretty high on Alaphilippe ahead of the race. He couldn't hack it on that final climb. It was just a little too steep. He kind of fell off the back, and then you had this sort of three-guy battle with Dumoulin trying to sneak back on, and um, yeah, Alejandro Valverde won in a sprint. How many times have we heard that before? Yeah, <laughs> So. About a hundred and forty times. Yeah, how many? Times just how he does it. You know? How many wins does he have in his career? He's got more than a hundred. It's an, it's unbelievable, honestly. Uh, Dane, you forgot to mention the uh, other member of that front group going up the climb. Oh, going up the climb, you had Gianni Moscone. Gianni Moscone. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Mm. Also, couldn't quite hack it. He had a nice, uh, you know, chase back on. Didn't quite make it like like Dumoulin did, but he was there. What he finished fifth, I think. So he was in the conversation. Uh, we've written about Gianni Moscone on the site before, and at least I have, about how I think he kind of sucks because he has uh, said racist things and punched people um, in the past. And I got to admit, as a cycling fan, I was uh, hoping for maybe like an asteroid to fall out of the sky and land on him, or at least for him to get dropped. Well, it was like such a special moment because Michael Woods, kind of a fan favorite, I got to say. He's a North American he had this emotional win at the Welta. He's just a, he's a good, good dude. guy. He's a good guy. And he's the one on the front just hammering this attack on the steepest pitch. And meanwhile, cycling's villain, Gianni Moscon, getting dropped. And it was just 
one of those moments as a fan where you're like, you just get a little welled up. You well up a little bit. And Muscan went from pedaling okay and looking comfortable to then, you know, he's yeah. kind of sloshing around on his bike to he, then just pedaling squares yeah. and looking like he was paper boying and about to fall off. Although in that period where he was chasing back, there was a sort of sense of dread, like, is Ooh. Johnny Mott? Because he's a pretty fast dun, sprinter, dun, and dun, if he dun. catches back up, there's a real chance that he factors there. So there was some dread. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it was, uh, it really looked like Woods and Bardet were pushing the pace on the hell climb, and that was what people were putting people uh, into pressure, including Valverde. There were a few moments there where I thought Valverde was going to go, and I think if that climb had gone on another couple hundred meters, Valverde's ticket would have been punched. But then the thing leveled out, and once that happened, I don't know about you guys, but once the climb leveled out and Valverde was still there, I was like, okay, yep. Valverde's going to win the world So Sew up that jersey. Yeah. Oh, it was, it was evident. And honestly, I don't, he, yeah, he was maybe had moments on the climb, but I thought he looked like he was able to cover and look comfortable. And once I saw him on that climb behind Woods and those guys, I was like, yeah, this is Valverde's day. Well, plus it was like, okay, Valverde's going to be going up against expert sprinters Roman Bardet yeah. and Michael Woods. Mm. Michael Woods, you know, he, right. he has that punch on steep climbs. I can't remember seeing him no. win anything flat. And also, for that matter, such a long race, more than 250 kilometers. It was, uh, well, it was 252.9 mm. kilometers and. A guy like Alejandro Valverde is so tuned for that kind of sprint at the end of that kind of long, long day. It, it, there's few in the in the world that can match that. Kind you don't of win that many Lieges yeah. by accident. Exactly, you know? exactly. So before we get to the ethical conundrum that a Valverde victory poses for our poor sport, uh, let's talk tactics. Did anybody screw up? Anybody? Any teams we can look at and say, what the heck were you doing? Dane, I can see the gears turning in your head. Yeah, the Italian team, I mean, Muscon in particular, very aggressive on that uh, on the Eagles climb, not not the hot in your hell climb where he was pedaling squares, but he was pretty aggressive leading up to that in a way that kind of made me wonder, what do you do? I mean, he's he's got a good sprint. You think he would try the more Valverde tactic of hang on and then try to out-sprint the guys at the end. I don't really know why he was trying to go on the attack. He's got a nice engine, but as we saw in the final climb, he clearly didn't have that that day, so that doesn't seem like a great tactic to be attacking early there. Yeah, yeah. for all the effort the Italians put in, you wonder if uh, he would have holstered it uh, at the, the summit of that penultimate climb if he would have had a little bit more for the hell climb. It was pretty unbelievable how many guys the Italians put on the front into that final lap to, to, to pull for Moscow. And you got to wonder how that conversation went where you must have told them he was on, great, on right. a great day. And it's like, okay, well, like, let's do this then. You know, we're setting you up. But uh, not, not, so, not so lucky, I guess, in the end there for him. I am also was a little bit puzzled by um, Team France on the climb up hell climb because it did look like Bardet was the one applying pressure to try and chase back Valgren, but in doing so, distanced Bar uh, distanced Alaphilippe, the man who you know we thought was going to have the best shot at this. You know, afterwards he said he just didn't have the legs legs on that climb, and you know, he finished top ten. But uh, I was kind of thinking, ooh, Roman, you know, you you have a couple more hundred meters to bring back Valgren, but at the same time, you don't want to go over the top with Valgren because he's probably going to win in a sprint. It, yeah. did, it did seem like on the whole, they're all kind of nervous with Valgren off the front on that final lap, and that they, they, they kind of got some ants in their pants to chase him back maybe quicker than they actually needed to. And in fact, I found that that 
that run off of the top of the last climb into the finish was pretty long and, and kind of like that would have been plenty of opportunity i think for a small group to to pull back valgren and especially due to the effort that that final climb would have required so yeah between the french and the italians i was i think that they maybe were a bit too too anxious to pull it back and and alaphilippe for my money would have legitimately had a shot at beating valverde in that sprint oh yeah i think uh maybe less tactical but just generally uh Maybe just more physical. I was kind of disappointed in Team GB. I thought we would see more from their very strong climbing duo of twins. And, uh, you know, they were kind of there, but they just didn't really have it. And and this was a race that, uh, I mean, you look at the top three. Clearly, this is a pretty climber-friendly race if Roman Bardet's finishing second. Right. Yeah, and they they were active. I mean, they had Peter Kenyuk go on the attack on that penultimate lap and uh, really force some of these riders to chase. I mean, it was Kenyak's attack that drew out Valgren. And um, to see then Adam Yates really just have nothing. He was tailgunning all day, too. Yeah. Uh, left me wondering, what was going on with Team GP? Yeah, Great-looking kits, though. More than you could say for the Spanish team. Mm. Ooh, those kits. Yeah, those are bad kits. Um, oh, uh, man. Uh, who's, our, who's our man finished fourth place at the Tour de France? Former ski jumper. Roglic. Primoz oh, Roglic. Primoz, yeah. Roglic was up there. He crashed. Early crash. They, yeah. they chased so hard to get him back. Yeah. They really wanted to give him a shot. Didn't, didn't like his kit. Did not like no? his kid. Oh, well. No. Mm, yeah, well. well, Slovenia is not going to be sponsoring no, the podcast anytime I'm sorry. Soon. I'm putting my putting my foot down editorially. We cannot accept sponsorship dollars from Slovenia. Slovenia is bad kids. Slovenia is one of those countries where I feel like it's just anything goes when it comes to national team kids. Like they don't care like what the yeah. color of their flag is, what color of their you know. It's just it's a grab bag of whatever color they feel like for that given it's year. It's like a lot of pastels and stuff. Well, sometimes it's like neon green and that's across the board. Like you see it with the Olympics gears and stuff and you're like, man, Slovenia really just like free for all when it comes to national colors. Uh, who had the best kit? Ooh. I kind of like the Canada kit actually yeah. that Mike Woods was classic. showing off. It's yeah. Classic. It was sharp. Can't go wrong. Uh, I'm going with New Zealand, George Bennett, the black Ooh. kit with the fern leaf. I always love that thing. Mm, that is yeah. nice. I, I'm a fan you know that the, the Italian kit is just so classic. Yeah, blue. Yeah. That that nice blue. Second to the Spanish kit, maybe for you. I know how much you like that one. The Spanish yeah. kit. The thing about that Spanish kit is, it just feels like pure nostalgia. Like I bet that the Spanish kit that Valverde wore when he was doing Junior Worlds in like the '80s or whenever that was was probably the same like general color <laughs> color pattern and design. Back when like most of these guys weren't even born yet, riding on uh, down tube shifters on a steel bike. Well, I suppose that's a good enough segue to get into the meat of today's discussion, which is about Alejandro Valverde. Uh, Valverde won. Uh, it was his first world championship win, something that he has been chasing after his entire career. He's been a pro for 16 years now. Um, and afterwards there were, there was a lot of hand wringing among some of our readers who expressed this to us via social media, the wonders of social media, Mm. because Valverde is an unrepentant, unapologetic doper. He was of course named in Operacion Puerto Ooh, nice. and was banned in 2011, 2012, or was it 2012, 2013? It was 11, 12, I 11, thought. 12. 11 and 12, because he had blood bags with Dr. Ufimiano Fuentes. And, you know, he he never said he, he did it. He never apologized. He served his time. When he came back, 
he just went back to kicking butt. Yeah, he won. I think Udwilanga Hill in uh, in uh, Down Under. First race back. Yeah. Down Under. Yeah. And since then. He's been on a tear. I mean, he has been one of the best riders in pro cycling, winning throughout the year. And it has made cycling fans wring their hands time and time again. We've we've talked about this when he wins races during the uh, Hilly Classics. But, you know, this world's really brought it to light because the World Championships is such a bigger platform. And so my question to start this discussion off is... What hesitations do you have around Alejandro Verde, world champion? We can get to why maybe we think it's fine that he wins, but like, what are the what are the black marks against Alejandro Verde that make you go, oh man, not this guy? I think I think it's an optics thing. I, I don't I don't think he's necessarily. Um, you, who knows what they're doing these days? But I think it's more of an optics thing because he represents that early two thousands generation of. Pro cyclist, I mean, he's the guy who outsprinted Lance to win that one stage of the Tour de France. It's uh, it just makes cycling fans, I think, uncomfortable because it's a reminder of that time and it's a reminder that it's not done yet. It's still there's still either riders in the peloton like Valverde or there are guys behind the wheel directing teams who are, you know, they were doing the same thing with him back then. So it's problematic, I think, just because. It, it it shows to us that yet again we we can't escape that era entirely and, it, and it's it's complicated. Dane, yeah, I was going to use that exact same word, optics. I think it's it's all about the optics for me, really. And I don't think there's been too much in the last five six years um, to mark Valverde out any more than any other rider as being likely or you know being someone who is maybe continued to cheat after his ban. I think he's been pretty close to model citizen status since then uh but yeah yeah the optics of somebody who was a you know is a convicted doper and, and definitely did cheat uh that's not great the only real uh present optics problem is his is his age uh he is getting up there to the point where i think people do start to say how's a guy this old still you know kicking butt i personally don't think he is so old for me to to say there's just no way and and so it's yeah it's an optics thing it's like uh yeah, okay, maybe, but I, I don't know that there's anything definitive there that, that makes me say, there's no way I can believe this performance. Or, yeah. Building off of optics and age, I'll throw consistency in there. Um, cycling is a sport where riders usually have peaks and troughs in terms of performance. And Valverde, when he is racing, he tends to always be good. He tends to, you know, the races that he enters, he always tends to be, you know, up there for the win, whether it's these tactical one-day races week-long stage races or even the grand tours you know we haven't seen him perform that great in the grand tours uh in the last few years and you know he always seems to have a bad day or two but he's consistently mentioned as a grand tour threat um so yeah you know when it comes to the optics i think for a lot of people who have a really hard line stance against ped use um obviously Valverde winning is going to be a bad thing. And honestly, I have nothing against those people. I mean, I'm, I've, I, you know, I count myself in that group at, at different periods in my cycling fandom. I don't really anymore, but I can definitely understand the like very hard line. You know, you had a problem with doping. Therefore. It's easier. It's easier to have a to have a black and white, right? Yeah, it's easier to have a black and white, and then it's also, you know, it's sort of a, a ethically makes you feel good. What about the reasons why maybe we don't have as much a problem with Valverde winning? 
I mean, I think the the big one that most people would have is the uh, he served his time and that he did. And, and now he's back and we haven't seen anything from him to indicate that he has cheated since then. Uh, and I, I think you kind of have to, in, in a way, you sort of have to accept some level of that if you're going to believe in a system where there is a penalty that people serve. I mean, unless you're going to get banned for life, you have to let these guys get back to racing after they serve their ban. And I mean, heck, the ban in cycling is a heck of a lot longer than it is in the NFL. Four games for a PD, PED use in the NFL. So uh, if you're going to buy into this system, well, then this is a guy who did pay the price. And so, and yeah, he's got a right to get back to bike racing. Well, I mean, the NFL is probably like totally clean, so it's not like yeah. I think you're right. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, they're anyway, they're so. all, they're on they're always like testing positive for like uh, lift lift a lot of weights. You know, they're testing positive for like uh, um, grit. No, for. Uh, you know, drugs that help you concentrate oh, for like yeah. ADHD drugs. That's true. They have to study the playbook. Yeah. yeah. Or performance, maybe not so enhancing drugs if you're Josh Gordon yeah. or a number of other uh, football players. Yeah. Uh, okay. We're off yeah. the rails. Yeah. <laughs> and this is Football Talk with Villain News. Yeah. Yeah. This is a little side project. Do you want me to go? Yes, Spencer. Okay. Well, for me, Valverde, the thing about the reason why I think you, you don't have a lot of reason to, to criticize him in this day and age is because. He wins a lot of races with his head, and he wins a lot of races with his tactical skill and his, his, his wisdom and having years and years of racing and knowing when to time his attack to perfection, knowing which wheels to follow, knowing that he doesn't have to pull through. He doesn't have to chase down a break. He knows that it will come back because he can read the race and he can, he can feel comfortable and confident in having that extra match to burn, whereas... Johnny Moscon tries to chase everyone back and then he's off the back or, you know, any number of riders make that mistake, especially in the Hilly Ardennes. And he's just got it down to such a, such a system where he's such a smart rider that I think that that's a little more to it than, than strictly his physical talents. Yeah. He's a, a strong enough rider to be in the mix at the end, but then he's the oftentimes the smart enough guy or the guy who just doesn't blink. So you don't see him put his nose into the wind until the very perfect moment where he has the surge at the right moment to win. You know, oftentimes we've talked about, like Peter Sagan can be guilty of this sometimes, and same with Philippe Gilbert, of winning with like a big hammer, you know, yeah. like winning with a baseball bat. Fabian Cancellara would always do that. Right. Just like, I'm the strongest, bang, 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 you know, I will beat you all down and then win. And you never see Valverde do that. It is, I guess sometimes in the the early season week-long stage races where everyone's kind of on questionable form, every now and again, you'll see like a Valverde 30-kilometer breakaway or some, you know, heroic yeah, um, in the training plan piece of form. Day. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but in the big races, the races that matter, it's... You know, it is a flick of the saber at the right possible moment to score victory. Uh, as he's he is an artiste of victory as opposed to a hammering champion. And the last thing I would say about his experience level is it goes back to him being a junior racer, like a child learning the craft of bike racing. I mean, his one of his early nicknames was the unbeaten one, the Imbatibo or whatever. Imbatido. Thank you, yes. Dane, our resident Spanish Well, expert. Fred's operas in Puerto was pretty strong earlier yeah, in the that pod. That was pretty so. good. That was pretty good. My point is just that if you have this this tactical sense ingrained into you from an early age like that, that, that's a huge advantage. And you look at Michael Woods, great racer, phenomenal talent, but he's only been racing professionally, seriously for, what, four or five years perhaps? And 
you just you just can't get those reps unless you've been doing it since since like age 10 or whatever Valverde was when he started. Another kind of wrinkle I'd add with the discussion of how Valverde wins is I know a lot of people, and I know a lot of fans over the last couple of years, you'll see it on Twitter all the time, really hate Valverde's style. People really criticize his style of waiting till the end of the bike race and using his sprint to win. People see that as being boring or you know, not heroic. And they did see a guy named Alberto Contador as this hero who would love to put in these long range attacks and they would often work and they would very often fail. But that he earned so many fans from that, from his style in a way that Valverde has not earned them. And you know what else Valverde uh, didn't, or you know what else Contador didn't earn was uh, the kind of criticism that I think Valverde is getting. When Contador won 2014 uh, Vuelta España, I don't remember any people on Twitter having this kind of conversation about Contador's past. After he came back from the Clembuterol ban. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Contador, another one of these people who, great rider, unrepentant doper, but just doesn't receive that kind of... Uh... Well, plus Contador, the cockamamie excuse, right? The tainted, uh, that's true. The tainted, tainted beef. beef. Tainted I mean, beef. you know... Valverde never apologized and he never acknowledged it, but uh, it's not like he came up with tainted beef. Yeah. Or it's not like he, like, you know. uh, He respected us enough not to give us a question. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Or he set out to, like, ruin people's lives who may have been able to uh, prove that he was a doper. I don't really know anything about that one uh, with Valverde either. No. No. And the, the funny thing about what you're saying, Dane, is that it's sort of like. Fans want to have it both ways. Yeah. They want they want to have someone who's impeccably clean, but they want him to ride like a doper. Basically, I mean, the reason you have to follow wheels and win with that kind of wheel sucker approach, like Valverde's done in the last five ten years, is because you just you don't have any extra help to 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 be able to put in a crazy heroic attack usually, and it's it's just not possible. Yeah, but again, you know, he does have the checkered pass. He's a link to the bad old days of doping. Uh, I mean, he started his career with Kelme, with those lime green jerseys that just make me think of EPO. Yeah. Uh, he beat Lance at Courchevel. He scored very impressive results during the go-go doping era. So I-, I hear what you're saying, Dane. He is a symbol of cycling's bad old days. And I just wonder if if and when he retires and if and when riders from that era are no longer racing, will we make will we no longer view them as a symbol or is that something that will always follow Alejandro Valverde around? It's hard to say. It's really yep. hard to say. I think the fact that he's continued racing into this era is is part of that as well. Um, some of those other guys you can say they were part of that era, you know, and then they retired. But Valverde, he's been part of this era, too. And yeah. I think that's another part of it is that we look around and we see the rest of the start list and they're all guys who are 33, 34 or younger. And then there's Valverde. And it's just it's a weird thing to see him up there. He is from that era and he's of this era, too. And that's another thing I keep seeing on social media is the people saying, oh, I want someone from the new generation to, like, carry the torch and, and be the one wearing wearing the rainbow jersey. Now, I don't you know, I want them, you know, it should be a chance for them. And it's like, well. Gotta be Valverde first. Gotta be Valverde. I know. And, you know, again, it's not like Valverde went on a 50-kilometer solo breakaway to make everyone raise their eyebrows and go like, holy cow, look at this guy. I mean, if if Julian Alaphilippe had gone over the top with this group, he could have won the sprint in the exact same manner. Yep. Well, we have made exactly no one happy with our discussion about Alejandro Valverde. So please tweet at us, comment on our Facebook, and tell us why we are complete morons. All right, guys, before we get out of here, should we do a little uh, off the front, off the back? 
All right, Dane, why don't you start us off? What's off the front? What's off the back this week? Yeah, off the front for me, I'm going to go with Double Lives, Moonlighting as a secret agent, Ooh, which is apparently what a number what? of Sunweb writers are doing. If you've seen the new Cervello advertisement, oh, yeah. pretty high production value on this thing. Uh, shows uh, Michael Matthews, Tom Dumoulin, uh, yeah, Leah Kirschman all up there just uh, being secret agents, breaking into the Cervello factory. Very exciting. Well, and the reason for this is... Because they're revealing a, a new bike, the S5. It's an aero bike. It's Well, yes, Dane, but the, the news is that Sunweb's oh, yes, going to ride course. Cervelo next Cervelo, year. Sunweb teaming up next year. A giant up in Sorry, Sunweb. giant. Uh, you're, you're apparently falling by the wayside. Tom Dumoulin's going to be on a Cervelo. Mike Matthews is going to be on a Cervelo next year. Okay. I love their rendition of the Cervelo factory as this like super high-tech thing mm. with like crazy computers. And I was like, I've been to bike factories before. <laughs> they don't look that way. No. Oof. Uh, Dane, what's off the back? Yeah, off the back, yeah, uh, I'm going to go with, all right, off the back, you know, I'm going to go with um, cramping. That's apparently what happened to Ashley Woman Passio. It happened to Mike Woods in the finale of the World Championships. Not a great time for you to cramp up. Uh, Woman Passio was one of the faves for that race, and Mike Woods was, I don't know, five feet away, three feet away from winning the uh, World Championship there Mm -hmm. at the end. Said he had some cramps. Not a great time for it. Well, he still got a medal at least. Drink your fluids, people. Yeah, stay hydrated. No or telling when you might cramp. Pickle juice, I guess, is the thing. Uh, is that what they do now? Yeah. Ooh, gross. gross. Yeah. All right. I'll go next. Okay. I'd say for me this week, off the front, was uh, getting frequent flyer miles. Because a couple of young Americans, Katie Klaus, Gage Heck, they raced the World Road Championships, in, I think, in the juniors and the under-23s. Uh, Katie's still a junior, I believe. And uh, they did that in Austria and then hopped on the plane and flew right to the Jingle Cross, uh, Cyclocross racing this past weekend in Iowa City. Quite a busy schedule for them. And uh, Katie Klaus definitely made it made it pay off for her. She was 10th on that Sunday race, which is a UCI C1. So definitely getting some nice points out of that one. Off the back for me, uh, riding a bike that doesn't have an electric motor because it's taken over people we've got an e-bike mountain bike world championship scheduled for 2019 it's the beginning of the end you might as well just get rid of your bikes don't have electric motors and just give in to our robot overlords this is this is it we're just all gonna be on new bikes in in a couple of years like i said when i was in italy oh my gosh the ratio was like 10 to 1 e-bikes to regular bikes yeah well also the uci is is adding an e-bike race the mountain bike race to the mountain bike world championships next year it's going to be in uh, muncie in canada who the heck knows what it's even going to look like i reached out to them today to ask about the format and everything and they they don't know they they've yet to work it out i guess or at least they're not going to tell a nosy journalist like me um so we'll see what they end up doing but uh don't worry people the real acoustic bikes are going to be around for a long time well as your as our in-house e-bike racer spencer you will be going to this e-bike world championships where you will both report and compete i should yeah i should get an automatic qualifier in the race yeah Yeah. spencer won a power drill getting second place at the e-bike race at sea otter yeah that's got to count for something top american top american uh, okay, off the front for me is slip and slide. Everyone loves a slip and slide. Katie Keo loves a slip and slide because she slipped and slided her way to victory at the World Cup this past weekend in Iowa City. That was Jingle Cross, the muddiest World Cup I've seen in a long time because, oh my gosh, it rained in the days leading up to Jingle Cross. It rained the day of, and it just turned into an epic quagmire where people were flying off their bikes, running around. Mariana Voss crashed a few times. People just finishing coated in mud. And Katie Keogh consistently stayed on her bike 
and was smooth getting off her bike. I went and watched the replay last night. It was very impressive. It was a great race. And this is awesome for American cyclocross to prove that we can put on a real European-style cross race here in the U.S. I mean, those hills on that course are legitimately difficult. The mud was super heavy. It it was I, I was it was exciting to see, especially after last year when it was just brutally hot at uh, Jingle Cross and kind of bone dry and not that exciting. And a huge step forward for Katie Keogh, her first World Cup win. Is this the year that she beats Katie Compton at Nationals? We'll see. Uh, off the back, uh, guys. I have, if, off the back, I have the democratic process, oh, democracy, no. Oh, no. voting. Stick to cycling. Yeah, we had the CPA election this past week. Oh, yes. The Riders Union and incumbent Gianni Bugno won 379 votes to David Millar, the challenger, 96 votes. Only 17 of those votes were cast by riders who actually turned up to vote. Uh, As you may have read on the site, CPA has this very arcane voting strategy that gives most of the power to people from France and Italy. One person has to show up for those countries to uh, vote all of their it's votes. It's a block, right? It's a block. It's a block. Yeah. Like the Electoral College. Kind of like the Electoral College, but only more sham. Definitely more corrupt. Yeah. Well, mm. uh, hard to say. Yeah, yeah, sure. um, but uh, yeah, if they actually had CPAs running the CPA... Maybe we wouldn't have this mm. sort of problem. Hot take. I never thought of that. What I want is for the election to fo- to, to operate like um, one of those like you know like uh, Star Trek elections. You know the Galactic Conference where you know the Earth has the same number of votes as like some mining colony on Blarfdor fourteen, <laughs> and it's just like all of the power is in the hands of these teeny tiny little you know like uh, Barbados has the same number of votes. <laughs> As France. Isn't that how FIFA got into all that trouble? Yeah, Fred? yeah. And furthermore, yeah. I didn't know you were a Star Trek guy. <laughs> no, I, uh, I would, I would love to see something like that. Okay. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. You'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelNews.com. Subscribe to the Vel News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Bellonews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Bellonews podcast is produced by Bellonews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Bellonews podcast, yes, even those Valverde opinions, are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boo Boo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic Soul Drums. Soul Drums.